today we're going to talk about what it means to extend the kingdom in your personal life. So turn with me over to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 5 and 6. Paul is writing, and he says this in verse 5 of Colossians 4. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Lord, help us as we study. Paul works really hard at making Christians relevant without compromising truth. And so for the balance of the letter to this point, he has talked about how important it was for the church in Colossae to understand their relationship to Christ and the relationship to one another in the church, what it means to love each other and be forbearing to one another and care for one another. As he ends the letter... He reminds them that there are people that they need to impact beyond just those who are members of the church. He begins to talk about how to conduct yourselves when you're outside with people who don't know Jesus. And he gives them a a couple of exhortations. He says you need to be concerned about two things. One, your conduct. And two, your conversation. One, your conduct. And two, your conversation. Now, I think it's fair to say that most of the world doesn't think you're real at all. They think you're a hypocrite. They think I'm a hypocrite. They're just waiting for me to appear on the, on the front page of the post, having done something stupid, slept with a secretary, stole money from the church. Oh, just that's what pastors do. They're in this thing for themselves. They just use this moment as a time of power to leverage it for their own benefit. They're waiting for you to fall too because most of the examples they have seen of Christians have been hypocritical. They come by their, their judgment honestly. I'm not mad at them. It's our fault. It's our fault. We have not been what we should be. And as a result, they, we, we've developed a reputation now, some of you are li- a living right, but you are suffering from, from, from those who have not. And Paul says in Romans chapter, chapter 2, verse, I think it's 24, he talks about the Jews and the Gentiles. And he says, the Jews ought to live right. Do you who condemn murder, do you do it? Do you who condemn stealing, do you do it? And he says, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. Talking to the Jews. Well, if we were to to superimpose ourselves over that exhortation and we being the church, the world blasphemes God because of us. They look at what we say and then what we do and they realize they're completely different. So Paul lays out some things that describe best conduct and best speech. And he says your conduct ought to be that which is influenced by wisdom. Wisdom ought to be the feeder of information for how you you live. And if you don't use wisdom as the, the, the motivator, as the inspiration behind all of your conduct, then your conduct is going to be so poor that at some point you're going to have to ask, what do I do? Which means you're going to need wisdom anyway. How do I get out of this? 
I have driven myself into a ditch relationally, occupationally, financially. I wish I had asked for wisdom before, but now that I'm here, I definitely need it. Anybody ever been in that situation? You don't want to raise your hand because you're embarrassed. If you haven't been there, you just haven't lived long enough yet. Because we human beings are prone to only approach God when we are in trouble. He's the 911 option spiritually. But if we use wisdom beforehand, we still need to approach him, but we may not need to approach him near as often to say, save me, please. I'm messed up here. I blew it here. God help me. I'm trying to make sure that I have as few needs to recover as possible. I want to make good decisions that I can enjoy the fruit thereof rather than always having to, to say, God, save me from the bad decision I just made. So Paul says, when you are with outsiders, let's not make that an issue. Let's let your conduct be fed and seeded by wisdom so that you can make the most of every opportunity. You may not have a lot of opportunities to minister to outsiders, but whatever opportunity you get, you've got to make the most of it. And wisdom allows you the privilege of doing that. Proverbs 4, verses 5 and 7 talk about wisdom. But the, the, the main exhortation throughout all the Proverbs is wisdom and understanding and knowledge. You need to get it. Verses 5 and verse 7 of chapter 4 says, In all you're getting, as you're getting your career, as you're getting your information from school and education, as you're getting relational status and, and, and boyfriend, girlfriend, and, and engaged and married, as you're getting, in all of your getting, make sure you get wisdom. And wisdom is what you need to get first. It's important for us to, to, to have these downloads regularly. God says in James... Chapter 1, verse 5, that if any one of you lacks wisdom, you may ask God at any time. And he will not say something like, huh, you should have asked me yesterday. I can't believe you asked me. You ought to know that. He will never upbraid you. He will give it liberally and that without reproach. But make sure that when you ask, you do not ask with double-mindedness in mind, meaning I'd like information, but then I'm going to decide whether it's a good idea to do it. Don't be double-minded, because the double-minded man will not receive anything from God. So, let me, let me boil it down to this. The person who comes to God with the intent of obeying will have the pleasure of hearing him speak. Otherwise, he may not waste his breath. But you can get wisdom anytime you want. Just ask. Just ask. Experience does not have to be your best teacher. It's a good one. It's a really good one. But it doesn't have to be your best. You can ask him what to do before you do it. Wisdom ought to be the feeder for all of your conduct so that the world doesn't say, huh, yeah, you talk a good game, but you sure don't walk it. You've got to let wisdom be that which... You seek foremost. I, I've made some decisions <clears throat> about my life that, that help me whenever the situation comes so I don't have to make a redecision. And these are examples of how I've, I've let wisdom inform my process in, in living. Five things for which I will die and five things for which I will not. Easy to remember because they all start with F. I will die for my flag. I'll die for my family. 
I'll die for my church. Excuse me. My, I'll die for my flag, my family, my faith. That includes the church. <clears throat> flag, family, faith, friends, and foes. Those five things are the only things for which I'll die. I'll give my life for that, my enemies. Then there are five things for which I will not die. I will not die for fun. You will never see your pastor at the long end of a rubber band jumping off a bridge. That's never happening. I'm not going to jump off a cliff with a squirrel suit. That's not happening. I'm not dying for fun. I'm not dying for finances. Somebody wants to mug me on the street, say, give me your money. I said, you want my credit card too? Listen, let me give it to you rather than you steal it. I get blessed that way. I don't have any ego that says, you can't take that from me. I got a family I got to go home to. I'm not going to die for a couple of bucks. That's not happening. Take it. Enjoy it. And listen, be blessed. <laughs> be blessed with my resources. And may the Holy Spirit fall on them and you. You got to decide beforehand. If not, you'll, you'll fight with some more, somebody over 20 bucks and it's really your ego. I died with Jesus. I do not need to prove myself to somebody else. Don't need it. I'm not going to die for a dollar. I'm not going to die for four-footed animals. I'm driving down the road. Bambi's there. Sorry. I am not swerving off the road into the woods and hit a tree. Bambi's gone. How do you say venison? You got to make a decision beforehand. You don't need to figure this out. What do I do? What do I do? No, bye. <laughs> I'm not dying for foolishness. I'm not going to die doing something stupid, being at the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong motive. I'm not dying for foolishness, sinful actions. I'm not doing it. And lastly, I'm not dying for food. I'm going to eat right. I'm not going to wind up. My goal is not to wind up in a hospital having to have a quadruple bypass because I just couldn't stop eating ribs. I'm going to eat right. Now, that doesn't, doesn't mean I don't enjoy certain things from time to time, but I don't make a diet of it. I've decided to eat right. Fruits, vegetables. I drink stuff you would never touch. Healthy stuff. I work out, I'm fit, I, I do stuff, I've made decisions. You got to decide before you go to an all-you-can-eat banquet. You got to decide before. Wisdom is helping to guide my life so that I don't wind up in places whereby, God, what do I do now? These little things that come in packets little white things that people light on fire and then inhale the smoke. Cigarettes. There's a little, little statement on the side. The Surgeon General has determined that this can be hazardous to your health. Basically, it says, if you smoke, it will kill you. He got real quiet. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Wisdom says, first of all, this is how you get wisdom. You get the right information, 
You come to the point of understanding, and understanding gives you the relevance to the information to your life, whereby you say, oh, I have information. I put it all together. I understand what the information is trying to communicate to me. And then wisdom says, I will respond properly to the, to the information and the understanding that I have. So the, the information is on the side of the packet. You realize, gosh, I don't, wanna, I don't want my kids to have to, to deal with their dad having emphysema and having to go through chemotherapy and radiation. I understand what this is going to do to me. So you just don't buy the cigarettes. That's how wisdom helps you conduct yourself well. When you don't use wisdom, you light them up, inhale 20 a day, and then wind up at the age of 65 with oxygen tubes in your nose. Now crying out to God saying, what do I do? And God's merciful. He always supports and helps. He gives you understanding. But I'm trying to make sure I never get in a situation that I have been the architect for my own demise and now trying to figure out, God, help me again. Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders so that you can make the most of every opportunity. Well, how does this work with outsiders? Speaking of cigarettes, it, it, it might not be a, a good idea to, to light up with your friends who aren't believers. Might not. Because in their mind, they're thinking, if you're a Christian and you're doing stupid stuff, why should I follow you again? Now, let me, let me help you. I don't think that cigarettes are going to stop you from going to heaven. In fact, they'll probably help you get there quicker. <laughs> I just want you to know, I don't have this thing that says, oh, cigarettes, gambling, drinking, I'm not one of those fundamentalists that feels that way. You want to smoke? That's your temple. You can destroy it if you want to. Just not smart. Just not smart. Not going to have any impact on your salvation. Has a lot of impact on how people can receive what you got to say. So I don't know that it would be a good idea for you to, to light up with your friends. Or let's, let's say alcohol. I'm not, I'm not somebody who's always running around with a little cross saying, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink. You want to have a glass of wine? That's up to you. But it might not be a good idea to go out with your friends who are unbelievers and just enjoy a conversation at dinner while you've had your sixth glass of wine. <laughs> that might not be a good idea because the problem is this. If that person has a problem with Christians drinking and you go ahead and do it because you feel the freedom you can, then I have a problem with you. And so does the Bible. Paul says this, I will not do anything that causes my brother to stumble. And he's dealing with, in Romans chapter 14, food and drink. I will not do anything. If it causes my brother to stumble, I'll stop it. That didn't mean that Paul didn't have a glass of wine in his own personal time. But it did mean if he came into a congregation with somebody who had issue with it or he went into the world with somebody who had issue, he didn't touch the stuff. Because he was trying to make the most of every opportunity. And the last thing an unbeliever needs is to try to hurdle you to get to Jesus. You should make it easy for them to get to Jesus. They shouldn't have to jump over your life and say, I don't know if I can because you, you're weird. You, you do some stuff that just isn't very consistent and that's not a very good representation on who he is. Make it, you ought to be a highway upon which they can get an easy on-ramp to Christ. Are you listening to me? Wisdom needs to be the, the feeder to your conduct so that you can, you can make the most of every opportunity with unbelievers. 
And so our conduct needs to be consistent. And then he talks about our conversation. This is how we extend the kingdom in your personal life. These, this is about your neighbors and your coworkers and the moms and dads that you participate with and the, the, your kids' sports and dance and other activities. This is how you do this. And he, he says your conversation ought to be second. He says your conversation ought to be seasoned with grace as with salt so that you know how to respond to each person. Grace uh, in the Greek is the word charis. It means kindness. Now, kindness doesn't always mean nice. Kindness can be tough stuff that you need to share because you care about that person. Christianity is not a nice religion. It's a painful religion. In order to come into it, you've got to die. This isn't just help you be self-actualized, become a better you. That's on the back end. First, you've got to come and pick up your cross and follow him if you want him. It's going to require everything from you. Cross is nice. But it's one of the kindest things you can do to somebody because you care about them so much and, and you realize if they keep going the way they're going, they're going to wind up in eternal destruction and that would be worse. Seasoned with grace. Grace is not only that which allows you to have the proper manners as you share. You ought not come in your business with your Bible wagon telling everybody they need to repent. You don't need to go into your school or any, any environment saying, I'm a Christian and all y'all need to do it and you're a bunch of sinners. People who do that aren't wise, number one. And two, they always blame the people for the response because they say it's persecution. Well, sort of, but your methods are terrible. <laughs> you are just horrible at the way you do what you do. And people are more mad at the way you do it than the fact that you're doing it. I'm not asking for that, nor does the Bible encourage that. But it is important that you relevantly begin to share the story of Christ in your life with people. And you do it with grace. It ought not be harsh. It shouldn't be judgmental. It shouldn't be critical. It needs to be with the understanding that save the grace of God, there you would be without him. Grace. And it needs to be seasoned with salt. Now, our conversation does need to be consistent. And this is where the seasoning takes place. There, there ought to be something in your life that, that has a regulator on your mouth that doesn't allow you to cuss. The other services didn't say amen then either. <laughs> Let me tell you why cussing is just not good. Whenever you say a cuss word, you are either invoking some kind of spiritual power that is relegated to God and for the proper context, out of the context, in order to prove that you've got something behind your words that's beyond just English. There's a, there's a certain sense of force. So you're looking for God to damn something. Or you're saying something that is relegated for, for behind closed doors and should not be brought out into public. And because you now feel the strength to take that which should be left there and bring it out in public, it brings greater emphasis to what you're trying to say because you have boldness to do something that others might not. Those are the only two, in, two, two categories in which cuss words fit. 
You ever heard anybody say, oh, marshmallows? <laughs> Turtles. Sparrows. Earthworms. <laughs> no, you've heard the other ones, which I cannot say and won't. But they should be relegated to certain environments and left there. And when you bring them out, it not only is poor manners, it says that you don't have enough restraint to allow the English language to inform your speech. The best part of the English language to inform your speech. I don't know that there is a more convicting and truthful and inspiring spot than where I am sitting right now. Not talking about my spot, but the spot where, where preachers have to preach. And this is the place of greatest influence in the world. Preachers that do not use curse words in order to communicate their point can do it very, very well because they work really, really hard at wordsmithing life so that the words that come out of their mouth inspire people. And if they ever have to resort to the other kind of language, it's because they haven't worked hard enough in the presence of God to communicate well enough to people without being immannerable. If it works well here, why shouldn't it work well in your workplace? If it works well here, is there a spot where it will not work well? We too often are liberal with our lips, and when people hear that, they begin to take a step back and they say, I thought you... Now, they may not say it, but they say it in the brain. I, I thought you were a... I, I thought you... Oh, well, let's go on. But they log it. They categorize it. They remember. And now you've just been brought down in their minds, rightfully so, as somebody who doesn't represent well the God they, they say they love. Your speech needs to be right. And it says it needs to be seasoned with salt. Salt is that which gives flavor. It, it, it enhances the environment of anything, the food that it's put on. It, it pops it. And indeed, there ought to be something about your speech that makes the gospel palatable. People just want to, when you finish talking, they say, you know, I, I, want to know, I want to know more. That's some of the best stuff I've ever heard. All it is is English, but there's something about the way you said it that allows them to, to taste it like they've never tasted it. But beyond just the flavor, salt is a preserving agent. Now, they didn't have refrigeration back then, and so salt allowed people to keep meat longer than it would normally stay. Without it, corruptive forces that just exist in the air get into meat, and it makes it rancid and, and inedible. And he said, I want salt to be a part of what you do. And when you, when you talk, preserving people so that they can live better and, and stopping the corruptive forces that are trying to invade their life constantly. Our speech needs to be that way with unbelievers. Matthew chapter 5 talks about salt. Jesus says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its saltiness, it's good for nothing except to be thrown out in the street and trampled underfoot by men. Now, what does Jesus say? A few weeks ago, we had a, a, a little storm here. We had ice, and then we had snow. And <clears throat> I've got to go to the store because Mama always wants the sidewalk clean and the driveway clean so people can egress and ingress. I said, okay. 
I can make it through, but my wife wants it clean, so I'm going to get my salt. So I go to Harris Teeter, and I go to, can't find any salt, all the salt. But we know what salt does. Salt lowers the freezing temperature of water so that depending upon the concentration of the salt molecules in the ice that now turns to water, it could freeze rather than at 32 degrees, 23 degrees, or 9 degrees, maybe even lower than that. And so when you put salt on ice, it lowers the temperature of water in terms of freezing, and so it turns into water. Jesus said, if you have lost your saltiness, all you're good for is to help people not slip. There are a number of people in the Bible that helped me not slip, but they weren't the right kind of witness. I learned from their disobedience because they lost their saltiness for a minute. Moses stood up one time and was mad at the people of God. He'd had enough of them complaining. They'd been out there in the wilderness for 40 years, and he was hoping that they could go straight into the promised land. But because of their disobedience, he had to live another 40 years out of the wilderness. He was right. They were wrong. And by the time he had the, the, the last temptation or, or testing they had, it was one with water, and they were mad, saying, why has God brought us out here? We're going to die here. There's no water. God wasn't really mad at the people, but Moses was. God told Moses, speak to the rock, and water will come out. Moses was mad at the folks, said, you arrogant and stiff-necked people, you've been this way from the beginning. He took his staff and struck the rock rather than speaking to it. Well, the rock we know in the New Testament was typical of Christ, type of Christ. And he already struck the rock earlier when they first came out of Egypt. This was the second time that water would come out from a rock. And we know this, that Jesus was only struck once. After that, you don't, he doesn't need to die all over again for you to receive benefit. Now you just talk to him. Are you listening to me? God was trying to set up a precedent here so people would understand. He dies once. After that, you talk. You pray. You request. You don't need to strike him all over again. He struck the rock. God told Moses, yeah, you're not going to the promised land. That was it. So if you ever make me mad, I ain't going to be mad at you. Mm -mm -mm -mm. I learned some lessons there. I have good footing because Moses wasn't very good salt that day. Samson, strongest brother ever in the Bible, took out a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. You could almost see some possibility with the jawbone of a lion because lions have these huge canines. Donkeys only have molars. That's all they got, molars. How are you going to kill somebody with a molar? <laughs> a thousand what a man yet he had no relationships we don't have one incident of him praying not once we don't see him answering the call eh, let me take that back one incident of him praying but you can barely describe it as praying he was mad after he, he vanquished a thousand Philistines that he couldn't find any water and he complained to God and said you're going to let me die out here or thirst after I did what I did for you I don't think I call that a prayer. <laughs> it's the only time he talked to God. We don't ever see him answering the call and saying, Lord, I'm willing to serve you. He only did it because he was trying to exact vengeance on the Philistines for what they had done to his wife. He was a mess. And on top of that, he hung around with prostitutes. His life wound up with his greatest victory being his own suicide. I look at that, I get great traction, y'all. Lord, don't let me live like that. Do not. I'm not going to slip in that area. 
I'm going to pray. I'm not going to be mad. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be bitter at you for not getting me something. Mm-mm, no, no, no. I'm not going to be Samson. No, 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 no. There are so many people that were not what they should be, and yet they provide traction for everybody else in their walk so they don't slip. You don't need to be that. Example. Person comes to your workplace. They just went to church last Sunday. They come in on Monday. And they, um, I, I got right with God yesterday, and like I gave my life to Jesus, and it was just amazing. And I feel so different. I'm lighter, and and um, uh, I don't I don't know everything about the Bible, but I just know that Jesus forgave me. And and and, and would you like to go to church with me next Sunday? I'm a Christian. I got my own church. You're a Christian? Yeah, yeah. Well, when, 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 did, when did you get saved? I've been saved since I was nine. <laughs> they don't know what to say, but they're thinking. I've been working with you for 10 years. First of all, I didn't even know you were a believer. There's nothing about your life that's any different than anybody else's. Secondly, why didn't you tell me? I've been without God for 10 years since I've been with you. Why didn't you tell me? Now, you've become traction for them. Whereby they're saying, if there's anybody I don't want to be like, it's you. You can love God, fine, but I do not want to be like you. You let me live in my sin for 10 years. Your conversation, does anybody know? And you might say, well, I'm not quite right yet, so I don't want them to know. Get right. (laughs) Get right. You're wrong. Get right. Repent. Love God. Live right. Extend his kingdom and let your conversation and your conduct be something that witnesses about the goodness that he has exhibited in your life. Don't be selfish and just be a a, a reservoir, a, a repository of the stuff that God gives. Be a river. As you get it, give it. Let's pray.